This morning, we're going to close out Nicodemus's conversation with Jesus. We're going to close that out this morning. You can see where the red print ends in your Bible if you got a red letter edition in verse 21. I didn't even bring up the debate there. Some people think, is this John talking or Jesus talking? We won't get into that. We're just going to finish what I believe is the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. And as we do, just remember that Jesus's whole purpose in this conversation is really twofold. This is his main point, if you will, is he wants to make Nicodemus aware of his own need to be born from above. And then secondly, he wants to persuade him to trust in God's solution in order to be born from above. Those are really his main point of this entire conversation. And in this section, really kind of starting in verse 15, we're going to see that Jesus uses two contrasts. He's going to contrast two different sets of things here to really drive his point home here at the end of the conversation. He's going to contrast starting in verse 15, uh, which we covered last week, belief versus unbelief. He'll finish that contrast in verse 18. When we get to verse 19 through 21, we're going to see that he he switches metaphors and he starts contrasting light and darkness, okay? But he's still driving home toward the main point, which is this twofold point I mentioned to you. And, um, you know, as we get into verse 18, there's so much to say about the passage we're going to cover today. I'm going to try to say it succinctly, succinctly in 50 minutes. Is that kind of an oxymoron? I don't know. Um, We're going to try to say it succinctly, but you know that most of society's problem with the gospel arises from from a faulty view of themselves and others. That's most people's problem with the gospel. When I say gospel, I'm talking about Jesus dying for your sins and rising again. That's what I'm defining as the gospel. In fact, people typically view themselves and others as either morally neutral or if, they, if you put them on a fence and, and made them pick, they would say people are morally good. That's the problem people have with the gospel because if you and I are just morally neutral or morally good, then Jesus coming to save you from something that you don't think you need saving from, it's just kind of an interesting story. It's, it's kind of, it's right up there with Aesop's fables. Like, yeah, Jesus, good moral guy, man, willing to die. Wow. Kind of cool guy. And that's the, that's the extent of your interest in the gospel when we don't have a proper perspective of actually where we stand before a holy and just God. And what we're going to see in verse 18 today is the Bible doesn't teach the story that's promulgated across the world, which is that people are generally good. In fact, if you were to ask a person on the street, are you a good person? Do you know what 95% of the people in the world would say? Oh, yeah, I'm a good person. And you know the standard for that usually is? I've never killed anybody. <laughs> Once you kill someone, you're not apparently. But if you don't kill somebody, you can do anything else and you're still a good person. And so there's just a misunderstanding here because if we realize what the Bible teaches, that all have sinned, that all are dangerously positioned under the wrath of God, a guillotine, so to speak, of judgment could fall at any moment, then we hear the good news and we say, wow. Jesus really accomplished something here. Wow, Jesus really loved me. Wow, Jesus really took care of my biggest need. And we begin to understand and recognize that the gospel's not just interesting, it's necessary. It's actually necessary for our eternal destiny. Now, one of the things as we kind of lead into verse 18, verse 18 is a great verse, not that we haven't been studying great verses, but verse 18 is a great verse. Because verse 18 is going to clarify some things that get oftentimes get re, uh, confused in religious conversation. And let me tell you why it does this. Because he's going to contrast belief and unbelief. 
And, and many people all the time talk about committing the unpardonable sin. That's a fun conversation to have with people. Because they'll say, what's the one? I'll say, well, what, what sends people to hell? Or how can you lose your salvation? And people will say, well, if you commit the unpardonable sin, you'll go to hell. And I've always asked, what is the unpardonable sin? And the response I've always gotten is, I don't know, but you just don't want to do it. <laughs> Which is a little frightening if your eternal destiny is based on a sin that nobody knows what it is. Nobody can find you, define you. You, know, you might as well just stay in bed and curl up in a fetal position so you don't commit the unpardonable sin. That would be a little bit safer bet. We're going to learn verse 18. There is one thing. There is one unpardonable sin. There's one thing that will send you to hell. It's not homosexuality. You're not going to find that in verse 18. It's not adultery. It's not murder. You're not going to find that in verse 18. In fact, the good news about the gospel of Jesus Christ is he paid the penalty for all of those sins I just mentioned, all of them. It's not what sends people to hell. What we're going to see is it's not a big licentious sin. It's not a continuum of sins. It's not a habitual sin. In fact, sin isn't even the issue anymore as to whether or not someone spends eternity with God or spends eternity in hell. The reason for that. It's because we've got a Savior who's died and paid the penalty for the sins of the world. So now the question becomes, which is what we're going to see in verse 18, do you believe it or not? Will you trust in God's solution for your sin problem or will you not? That's really the issue as we look this morning. And so John 3.18 just says this, he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. We just came out of a very detailed message last week where we dove into the Greeky kind of details of the participle and this and that. Um, for those that are interested, this is the same exact construction, Greek construction that he's used in verses 15 and 16. He, he's talking about the believing one, the one who believes. Okay, this is the, the one who believes in him is not condemned. And what he's saying is something right now of that type of person, that type of person who, who has believed, something's true of them right now. Right now, they're not condemned. In fact, that word condemned is a present tense indicative verb. It means right now, in this moment, the, the one who believes is not condemned right now. That's what it's talking about. In fact, when we look at the word condemned, it's the same word used in verse 17. Remember verse 17, God did not send his son into the world to what? To condemn the world. Why did he not send his son into the world? Because they're already condemned. We're going to see from this verse. He didn't need to send Jesus into the world on some fact-finding mission. He's not gathering evidence. He doesn't need any evidence against us. It's pretty clear that we are guilty and we deserve condemnation. And so if a person wants to escape judgment, this is the point. God's provided a way. I, I, I love our God because he doesn't want anybody to go to hell. Contrary to what people think about Christianity, we got, we got a God that loves you so much he took care of your biggest need. Doesn't want anybody to go to hell. He wants you to benefit for what he's accomplished for you. And the, and the point of what Jesus is saying here is we've got to believe in him. He is God's solution. And if you do right now, you, you're not condemned. By the way, it's not the only place that teaches it. We're going to see this when we get to John 5, 24, same concept communicated 
elsewhere in the Bible, Jesus says, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death unto into life. And, and, and when we get there, we'll, we'll talk about some of these are transactional comments. Some of these are ongoing. Shall not come into judgment or shall not um, enter judgment is a present tense thing. You're not condemned anymore. It, right when you believe, you move out of this realm of condemnation. I love Romans 8.1. Notice that timestamp in Romans 8.1. There's therefore what? Now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How do you get in Christ Jesus? You believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. God then performs a spiritual operation, so to speak, and he places you in Christ. And now that you're united to Christ, you can no longer be condemned. You see, the Bible just fits together hand in glove. So the contrast to this, because there's a moment in time that we trust in the gospel. You don't, uh, this is ironic. People don't come into the world saved. I, I remember talking to a lady one time and I say, are, you know, are you saved? And she said, yeah. And I said, well, how long have you believed in Jesus Christ? She's like, oh, all my life, all my life I've believed in Jesus Christ. And later in the conversation, she slipped and she says, I've always believed in the gods. I mean, I mean, God. She so she was very confused. She just thought because she was born in a house that went to church that she, just as long as she could remember, she believed that God exists. That's not what we're talking about here is all, at all. We're talking about when did you recognize that Jesus died for your sins personally, he paid the sin debt that you deserve to pay, and that God raised him from the dead. That's what we're talking about here. That's a moment in time. But you know, the contrast is true at birth. And this is what, again, much in society doesn't understand. Many people in society don't understand. And, and here's, here's my advice to somebody if they, if they would like to go to hell, if they want to be condemned, do nothing and you'll go. That's what our passage is going to teach us today. Because the moment you're physically born, you're, you're, on a, you're on a destiny track toward condemnation. That's what John 3.18 is going to teach us. Now, that's not very good news, and I'm kind of being facetious there, because what do most people think will send them to hell? A big whopper sin, a Burger King-sized sin will send them to hell. That's what most people think. That's not what the passage is going to teach us today. It's going to tell you that you deserve hell, you deserve death. That's what the Bible teaches. The wages of sin is death, right? Romans six twenty three. If you got what you earned and deserve, if I got what I earned and deserve, it would be death and hell. This is exactly what John three eighteen is teaching. That's why the gospel is such good news because when you have that perspective, Jesus died on the cross. It's not just some nice little story. It's your lifeline. It's it's your stretcher. He. He becomes everything that you need that you never knew that you always wanted, a savior, because you need saving. We need saving. And this is what this passage is going to bear out for us. Um, he's going to say in that very next phrase, coming out of that first, he who believes in him is not condemned. But notice that next phrase, he who does not believe is condemned already. Again, same Greek construction he's been working off of. Now, you're like, why does he keep talking about this? Because he's going to shift it a little bit. And I want to keep bringing that to your mind. So you see when he shifts using this participle construction. So again, now he's talking about the unbelieving one, the one who does not believe. Okay, he's just using this as a descriptor. 
And so in contrast to the one who trusts or relies upon Jesus Christ, this person rejects reliance upon Jesus Christ. And because of that, they're condemned. That's what this phrase is talking about. And by the way, just because we're saying that somebody rejects Jesus Christ doesn't mean they're rejecting him with gritted teeth and fists in the air. We understand that, don't we? There's a lot of people who reject Jesus Christ, but who are religious. There's a lot of people who reject Jesus Christ and they go to church every Sunday. There's people who reject Jesus Christ and they teach Sunday school. I'm not talking about the drug addict sleeping on the streets last night, necessarily. I'm not talking about that. We're talking about rejection of reliance upon Jesus Christ, God's solution for sin. In fact, religious people are often the worst at this because they're so confident in themselves, which I'm thinking to myself, have you lived a day in this world and you have that much confidence in yourself? I was just talking to my father-in-law this weekend and he told me, he said something, he said, you know, the older I get, the more humble I get, which is kind of interesting. You're, and we're bragging about our humility, but I understood what he meant. I took him at face value. And what he was saying is the older he gets, the more he realizes what he doesn't know. And I think we can relate to that. You know, imagine if you're, you're so confident in yourself, you think you're good enough to go to heaven. What a, what a scary place to be, honestly. By the way, do you know that everyone in this world is relying on something to get them to heaven? Even people that don't believe in God, what are they relying on? God doesn't exist. <laughs> so I'm not going to face a judge. And that's what they're relying on. But you look at this picture, this guy's laying on the hammock. He's totally relying on something else to hold him up. The only thing in that picture that's breaking the law of gravity is the hammock. <laughs> if a hammock wasn't there or it's not tied off well, I've seen those kind of hammocks too. Um, the law of gravity is going to take over and he's going down. But what's this guy trusting in on the, on the right side of your screen? Oh, there's a hammock in the background. What's he trusting in? His own legs. He's trusting in his own feet. And, and, and that, in that sense, he doesn't overcome the law of gravity because his feet are on the earth. You know? And that works on the other side of the globe too. You don't drop pins in Australia and they go up, right? I mean, it's gravity is kind of a universal law. And so you see that everybody everywhere is relying on something. What John 3.18 is saying is those who don't rely on Jesus Christ, they're condemned already. Before the present tense was used for condemnation, this is really interesting because the person who believes is right now not condemned. Notice this, Jesus switches now to the perfect tense to say that those who don't believe are condemned. Perfect tense means the unbelieving one has already been condemned in the past with results continuing in the present. See, it, it goes to a past point in time where they were condemned. Now, where were they condemned? Did they do some big whopper sin in the past that they got condemned for? Just being a teenager should probably condemn most of us, right? The dumb things that we do. No, he's talking about birth. He's talking about physical birth. They've always been condemned. At a point in time when they came into this world, they were born under judgment. This is what the Bible teaches. And that remains true while they remain an unbelieving one. This is what's being communicated here. And so the question is, again, sin is not the issue. This is what we've got to understand. Sin is not the issue. Sin was an issue 2,000 years ago. God solved that problem by sending his son to die for sins. Sin's not an issue anymore for anyone to go to heaven. 
Big whopper sins, little whopper sins, lots of repeated whopper sins. None of those things will condemn a person. This is what condemns a person. God has provided the solution. Will you trust in his solution alone? If not, you got one foot on the hammock, one foot on the ground, kind of trusting in yourself, kind of trusting in the hammock. It doesn't fly. Because what you're saying there is that what Jesus did is not enough. I'm going to help him out. Wow, perish the thought that those words would ever enter our mouth about our Savior. That somehow we're going to help him out? Trust me, he doesn't need any help. <laughs> he, he accomplished it all for us, and we want to trust in him alone. So again, notice, uh, again, just working our way through verse 18, all of these kind of textual clues, even in the English, I mean, just show us. Notice that very next word after the phrase we just covered. Why are these unbelieving ones condemned already? Notice that very next word in the English, because. He wants to give us further reason here. And what he's going to say here is that they've never believed. And we'll, we'll bring that out in the Greek. He's going to say, because they've never believed. Not because they believed and then rejected Christ later. That's a lot of people think you can lose your salvation if you believe at a point in time and then 20 years later, you just go all out apostate. You reject Jesus Christ. That's not what this verse is teaching at all. This is teaching that someone never believed in Jesus Christ. He has not believed. And I, again, I've been telling you, it's participle, participle, participle. Now he switches to a perfect tense. And what he's saying is, Again, completed action in the past with ongoing results in the future. What is he saying? They've never believed at a point in time in the past, and they remain in unbelief. That's what he's saying here. This is why they're going to be condemned. And so you see, it's not sin that condemns somebody. It's what? Unbelief. It's they've never trusted in God's solution alone. This means, again, that this person's not believed in Jesus at a point in time in the past, and they continue on in that unbelief. It's not a person who believed once and then quit believing. We talked about that a little bit last week. It's not a person who believed once and then committed some huge sin or was involved in habitual sin. That's what many people would teach here. No, this is simply a person who's never believed. They've never been born again. They've never gotten the credit of what Jesus accomplished for them. And what did he accomplish again? He faced the death penalty for you. He died in your place so that, as John 3.16 says, you'll never perish. Why will you never perish? Because your substitute perished for you in your place so that you wouldn't have to. And then the other promise in John 3.16, you have eternal life. Right now, you possess something that lasts forever. So if it I possess it the moment I believe, and it lasts forever. Can you ever lose it? I mean, let your brain think on that for a little bit. You can't. If you could lose eternal life in 20 years, it's not too eternal. If you can lose it in 30 years, it's not too eternal. It lasts forever. And so what Jesus is talking about in verse 318 is someone who's never believed, someone who's never been born again, someone who has never trusted in the finished work of Christ and thus received these unbreakable promises from God that he details in John 3.16. This is why, by the way, an unbeliever has been condemned and judged and remains in that state. They just remain in a state of judgment. The, the heavy hand of justice above their head, they remain in that state until they believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then if they don't ever do that before they physically die, then they will suffer the consequences of their unbelief. This is what the Bible teaches. By the way, it's so fascinating. We'll, again, we're going to get there uh, eventually, but flip forward with me to John chapter 16. 
And I think you'll find this, uh, this concept, um, again, taught throughout the scripture. But in John 16, Jesus, in describing the Holy Spirit, describes a relentless ministry of the Holy Spirit. Relentless, tireless. He, the Spirit of God is working to do a couple of things. And what's really fascinating is if you just read through this passage really quickly, we're going to miss the thrust to the point that he's driving home. Look at John 16, starting in verse 8. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Three things. He's going to be tirelessly and relentlessly convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now, don't read any further, or maybe some of you already have, or you've studied this passage before. When you hear that the Spirit of God is going to be convicting the world of sin, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? I mean, he's going to get those adulterers. He's going to get those murderers. He's going to get those liars and those cheaters and those dirty, rotten IRS agents and whoever else we want to throw into that sinful category, right? But look at verse 9. We, we let Scripture interpret Scripture. And look at the sin, singular, by the way. Notice he didn't say, I'm going to convict the world of sins. But sin, singular, what's the sin that he wants to convict them of in verse 9? Of sin, because what? They don't believe in me. Isn't that something? And, it's, and when we tie that into John 3.18, can we see that the sin of unbelief is the only thing that condemn somebody to hell? That's it. Because sins, plural, has been paid for in our substitute. And so the Spirit of God is working overtime to convince people that they need to trust in God's solution and God's solution alone. And now, as a master teacher, so to speak, Jesus is going to switch gears. You know, I, you know it's, we don't have the response of Nicodemus here, but you can see sometimes when you're teaching somebody, and, and parents know this, and anybody that's ever taught, you, you can see in people's eyes sometimes, they're just not quite getting it. I'm not quite connecting the dots well enough, or maybe I'm going to try a different angle here. And so in verses 19 through 21, Jesus is going to switch contrast. He's been contrasting belief and unbelief. He used that Old Testament example in verse 14 to start this conversation in contrast. Now he's going to switch to light versus darkness. Okay, he's going to switch gears here in verse 19. And so in verse 19, uh, we read this. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. I like this, this phrase. By the way, condemnation used here in verse 19, it's the noun form of the verb that John's been using to describe being condemned. And generally, it, it described an opinion formed or expressed as an official judgment. I like what the Net Bible says. Uh, it words it this way. Now, this is the basis for judging, or this is how judgment works. And, and so it's really interesting because in this passage, God is making an evaluation and mankind is making an evaluation. Mankind's evaluation is, is what God did good enough? Is it persuasive enough for me to rely upon it? That's the evaluation that mankind's doing. So some believe, some don't believe. Some rely on God's solution, some reject God's solution. And then we see the condemnation or the, the opinion expressed by God is, if you don't believe, you'll face judgment. If you do believe, condemnation's gone. 
That's really the evaluation that we see. And he describes this, the condemnation, as light has come into the world. Again, perfect tense. Light at a point in time in the past has come into the world and it remains. What's Jesus talking about? I think he's talking about himself. John chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. John the Baptist is testifying to the light. Who's the light? Jesus Christ. Now, John's not that light himself, but John, with his small flashlight, as you, if you recall back in John 1, his small flashlight is he's shining it on the spotlight, which is Jesus Christ. And this is what we're talking about. But even more specifically, we're talking about the revelation that Jesus is the light of the world. And thus, he's to be trusted in. They're to reject every other potential light source that exists and trust in the one true light. The verb tense also indicates that God did not just shine the light quickly and remove it, but rather leaving the light on. You ever been with someone in the dark and they're the one with the flashlight? That can be a frustrating experience because you're like, shine the light over here. I need to see where I'm going. And they're like, they flip it over there for a second. And you're like, that didn't help me at all. I th- now I think I saw a snake. Can you, can you kind of put it back there just to make sure we're safe here? This, the, the verb tense here is that God shine this light, that this light has come into the world and he, and he held it there is the idea. He kept it there so that you could behold it. That's, again, the whole goal of the book of John and looking at the life of Christ is to behold the lamb, to just occupy ourselves with what is going on there in that revelation. But you know what's so sad about this verse is as Jesus, again, is moving through this with Nicodemus, he says, this is the condemnation. Light has come into the world. And how did men respond to it? We see in that very next phrase, they didn't reciprocate. They didn't reciprocate God's love. In fact, we just heard in John three sixteen, God not only loved, but, but we can see in our English translations too, he did what? He so loved. Like, he big time loved is, is kind of the idea. That's the extent, the greatness of his love. Guess what men did? They didn't reciprocate that. In fact, they loved, as verse 19 says, they loved what? Darkness rather than light. Men loved the darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. You know, when you're doing something wrong and evil, the darkness is what you prefer. The, the quietness, the solitude, the being away from others who might see and judge you or pass judgment, that's what you do because you want the wrongdoing hidden. This is why, like, even little kids, you don't have to teach them this. You, you know, you're across the room from him in the kitchen and you say, don't touch those cookies. Those are for our guests coming over in three hours. And you peek across the room and they're over there doing this. And what do they try to do? They don't want anyone to see them. Because they're about to do something wrong. It's about to get crazy up in here, you know. I don't know how many cookies are they going to put away, right? And so because that is the natural mindset of man. And we're going to get even more, I think, into the context here with Nicodemus. Because how would this apply to Nicodemus? He's like this moral religious Jew. I mean, he's not out committing adultery. He's not out doing this, most likely, right? He's very moral in his life. So what is Jesus talking about with him? We'll kind of look at that as we go. But notice that it says that men loved darkness. They didn't just like it, right? He uses the word agape, agapao, the verb form, meaning to love with strong affection. It's, it involves the direction of your will. It describes the, something that you find your joy in, 
right? This is not just an affection. This is like, they're into that darkness thing. They're, they're really into it. They're really committed to it in the, in the sense of that's where their will is taking them. And what's really tragic about this, and I mentioned this, is verse 16, God so loved the world. And then we read that men don't reciprocate. Men love darkness. God, knowing what man's biggest issue is, loved man so much that while they were still sinners, he sent his only begotten son to die for them, to suffer a cross death that he did not deserve to pay for you and I. He knew what was necessary. And Jesus was willing to do what was necessary. And this is how men respond. Ah, take it or leave it. Ah, it's cool. I, you know what? I, I'm going to give Jesus a head nod at Christmas and Easter because that's about kind of, but I, man, tip my hat to him. In fact, I'm even going to give him a tip. What's, you know, what's, what's tipping these days? About five bucks? Okay, let me throw five bucks on the plate too while I'm there. And our attitude is just so cavalier to the actual magnitude of what is going on and what God accomplished for us. And yet this describes mankind. Don't, don't see other people in this verse. See yourself. This was you before you got saved. Those of you who have trusted in Christ, this was us. This is exactly how we occupied and navigated our life until we understood this message as well. And you know, that's tragic. They took their joy, unbelievers take their joy in this manner of living. And as I mentioned before, lest we think darkness just describes the deepest, grossest, nastiest, vilest sins imaginable, let's remember who Jesus is talking to here. Let's remember who Jesus is trying to persuade here. Because if he's just talking about gross, hairy, wart kind of sins, Nicodemus would have been like, amen, those people deserve to go to hell. I don't think that's what he's doing here. I think he's trying to convince Nicodemus. Nicodemus, you're loving darkness, which is self-righteousness, Nicodemus, which is depending on your birth, Nicodemus, you're loving darkness. You're doing religious deeds. You think they're gonna gain you favor with God. They are evil. In fact, what does Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? A couple things, 520, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the righteousness of the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And then what does he say later in Matthew chapter seven? Oh Lord, we cast out demons in your name. We prophesied in your name. And, he's, and in, the first thing he says is, depart from me, you workers of not religious greatness, iniquity. Because religious Moral self-reliance is just as repugnant to God as if you were living out in the ditch, smoking weed, sleeping around, living it up. We, we just don't think of it that way because we would prefer a neighbor that's religiously moral than the other guy I just described. We would prefer a friend who's religiously moral than the other guy that I just described. And, and we conflate that with how God sees things, and he doesn't see things that way. In fact, what he sees is very black and white. Are you trusting in yourself or are you trusting in my son? That's how he sees it. And so, again, Jesus is bringing this all out to Nicodemus. Darkness, again, as I've mentioned, can describe not only licentious and overtly sinful activities, but also religious, moral, and inwardly sinful activities. Again, in the Sermon on the Mount, how does Jesus bring out the righteous standard of God? He said, You've heard it said of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, what? If you look at a woman with lust, okay? He's going heart, inward, 
sins that God still judges as if you're doing the very overt external act. He does the same thing with murder. If you're angry with the brother without cause, he goes to the inward. See, God is just as offended by religious inward sins than he is the external acts. Now, we as a people, you know, I'd rather you hate me than kill me. Clearly, right? I mean, I don't want, I'm okay. You want to hate me, that's fine. I don't want you to kill me, right? And I kind of see a distinction in the two. But in God's justice system, he doesn't. It's the same exact thing. We just don't typically think that way. Ultimately, you could say that darkness is anything outside of the light. Isn't that true in the physical realm as well? Anything outside of the light, spotlights on Jesus Christ, spotlights on Jesus Christ and what he accomplished for you, spotlights on his death and resurrection. And when you add a comma or a but or a yeah and to that spotlight, you are in darkness. You have taken the spotlight away from the one who deserves the spotlight. And we do that sometimes by the type of responses we give to the gospel. We do that in such a way where we say, well, there's, I, I, I was just even reading, I was talking to Howell earlier, I was reading in this, this section, it's said that, and now there's two things you got to do to be saved. And right away, the red alarm just goes off. That's about to be a Chinese fire drill right there. Like when anybody says there's two things you got, now there's two things you got to do to be saved. I'm thinking to myself, I'm done reading this. Because the last time I checked my Bible, 160 verses give one thing I need to be, do to be saved because the work's already been done for me 2,000 years ago. And that's to believe. That's to rely upon the one who died for me and rose again. It's very simple. We often conflate that message. So anything outside of the light could be considered darkness. The reason given for this love of darkness, because their deeds were evil. Again, just kind of tracing through the wording in that, in that verse, because their deeds were evil. It's interesting to note that this word evil here uh, can describe evil in both a moral or a spiritual sense. In fact, it largely describes an evil that corrupts others. Now, isn't that exactly what Nicodemus and the, and the religious Pharisees were doing? They were corrupting an entire nation. They were corrupting an entire generation to simply trust in their physical birth. Wait a minute, you're, you're a son of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Don't worry about it, you're in. That was their attitude. Jesus is like, that's wrong. This is evil. This is not necessarily gross licentious sin. This is gross religious sin that's directing your focus towards self-righteousness, and that is offensive to a holy God. Because God's determination, in fact, <clears throat> If God accepts self-righteousness to get to heaven, then why did he send his son? He would just require self-righteousness. He would just say, you better get to work. <laughs> I know, heaven's hard. So what? You better get to work. But because it was impossible, there was a necessary solution, and it doesn't end and start with you. You are not the solution. I'm sorry to say, I, you're coming for a positive message. Now, there is a positive message, but... You are not the solution. You are the problem. I'm not the solution. I'm the problem. Jesus Christ is God's solution. And thus he wants us to trust in his solution like we would trust in a hammock to keep us off the ground due to the law of gravity. There is a, another law that's much more uh, sinister than the law of gravity. It's called the law of sin and death. And the only thing that can free you from that is the law of life. In the spirit of Christ Jesus. That's what Romans 8 teaches us. And so it's interesting that their deeds, these evil, gross licentious deeds outside of the light, 
is the reason that they love darkness. The idea is that they promote their own way. They reject God's way. That's really, I think if we could summarize that better. And so that takes us to verse 20, where he talks about practicing evil. And you're going to see that, that the people that practice evil, they come up with two general responses. We'll kind of look at that as we go through the verse. Verse 20 says this, for everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. Practicing means to do, to make, to perform in general. It describes what a person does repeatedly, continually, uh, habitually. It just describes a, a lifestyle, if you will, a life approach, if we could say it that way. Interestingly enough, the word evil used here is a different word than used in verse 19. And so let's kind of define that. It means vile, evil, wicked, foul, corrupt. And then I love these, these secondary definitions. You know, words have a large semantic range of meaning, but it means stuff that's good for nothing. Self-righteousness, good for nothing. Depraved, worthless, unimportant, something pertaining to being low-grade or morally substandard. And see, again, this could apply to licentiousness. This could apply to religiosity that pushes you towards self-righteousness. This can describe all of that because each of those paths, each of those practicing ways of living are deeply offensive to a holy God. A holy God who will tell us later in John 14, 6, that there is one way, one truth, and one life. That there's one light of the world, that there's one bread from heaven, that there's one door, and that there's one shepherd, right? All of these ones. God's very exclusive. He makes no apologies for that because the situation was so desperate, it needed his solution. That, that's what we've got to understand. He's not going around trying to make people feel bad about themselves. He's actually providing a solution to a predicament that they're in that they can't get themselves out of. That's the beauty of th- this message of the gospel. So if, uh, those who are actively engaged in practicing these worthless, good-for-nothing things in life respond two ways to the light of the message of Jesus Christ. We see this right here in verse 20. In fact, I believe these two responses, and the reason that Jesus is saying this is because of his conversation partner, Nicodemus. Again, I think if we could get into the heart of Nicodemus, the mind of Nicodemus at this point in the conversation, you would see these two responses going on in his mind. And he was polite, I think. I mean, we don't know. We're speculating. He was polite earlier. He was respectful, probably. He was respectful earlier. But these, this is what's going on in his thinking as Jesus says this, because I think Jesus is nailing to him to the wall here to bring him to a point of decision. Because what he's going to say is when you practice evil, Nicodemus, when you walk outside of the light of the revelation that I'm giving you, you're doing evil deeds in the sight of an almighty God. And this is how people that do that respond. Number one, they hate the light. They, they hate it. They haven't, and, and I love when people say, well, I've never hated anyone. I've just strongly disliked somebody. I'm like, that is hate. <laughs> and this is what it is. It implies an ill will uh, in words or conduct toward a person or thing that they detest or uphold. It's not a neutral feeling. It's not, it's not just, just you're apathetic to it. Nah, take it or leave it. 
It's literally, there's this response of hatred that dwells up within. And it's almost like, who does this Jesus Christ think that he is? It's kind of the attitude that's coming out. And you can see that, by the way, can't you bear out in the lives of the Pharisees as we're going? Well, you will see it. But you've seen it if you've read the Gospels. This is exactly their response to the light. They hate it. And and not only that, uh, it's present tense right now. Right now, ongoing, continual hatred toward the light. Second response there we see in verse 20, they don't come to the light. Uh, Come is a present middle indicative, meaning right now. They, ongoingly, they choose not to come into the light. You know what that means? That they're presented with this great news of the gospel message, and because they don't realize they need it, they choose to reject that and continue on their path of darkness. So convinced, hyper-convinced that what they're, the path they're on is going to lead to the kingdom or lead to eternity with God. This is exactly where I believe Nicodemus was at this moment. And because of these responses, they indicate that not only that, they're aware of the light. That's what's really tragic. Because to hate the light and to not come to the light means what? You know about the light. You, you've been told the light. You've been given that revelation. You've been given that teaching. And this is what's so tragic to me is they actively reject it. They're not persuaded by it. They don't see the value of it. That is just mind-blowing. Now, for believers, we, that is, it's mind-blowing for us because we came to a point where we saw the value of it. We said, you know what? I'm banking my eternal destiny on Jesus Christ and what he did alone. But for an unbeliever, that, it, because they don't have a concept of the necessity of what he did, it is a take-or-leave proposition. And so, again, Nicodemus being an expert religious leader of Israel, he's more than comfortable at this point. I do think he's been challenged, obviously. But I think he's more than comfortable at this point to go on in his darkness. Remember, we read back in verse 11, he didn't receive the witness of the Godhead. He, he, he's not receiving it at this point. Um, we believe that he did later, but we'll get to that in John chapter 19 in the year 2030, probably, at the rate we're going. So now we get the answer. Why, why people respond so actively and so aggressively in opposition to the light. In fact, look at verse 20. Look at that, that next word as we're kind of working our way through the phrases. It's the word lest in the New King James, lest his deeds should be exposed. Got to define this word exposed. I mean, most of us know what it means, but it, this word in the Greek means to shame or disgrace. It means to convict and prove that someone is wrong in order to shame them. Now, that right there has kind of a negative connotation to our thinking, right? If you find out, yeah, someone says later, yeah, I corrected you in that public meeting because I was trying to shame you. You'd be like, man, that's what kind of like fighting words, especially if they did that in front of your boss, right? You don't, want, you don't want to be shamed, right? But the idea is that they're shamed. Why? So that they'll change their mind. So that they'll see that they were wrong. And it could be a, a positive thing. In fact, it's, it's loving. When you, when you share the truth in order that someone will benefit from the truth, even if it's painful, it is done from a motivation of love. And Jesus is trying to, I believe, motivate Nicodemus here. Nicodemus, I know that if you believe what I'm saying, I know you're going to have a lot of tough conversations ahead of you. Because as one of the premier teachers of Israel, can you imagine the vitriol he would face if he said, guys, we got it wrong. And let me tell you why we've got it wrong. Look how they responded to Jesus. 
In fact, the most dangerous people in Jerusalem at this time in history were not the Romans. It was the Pharisees. Because anyone that can hold a Bible in one hand and a knife in the other, you better run. And that's exactly what the Pharisees were. And so it seems harsh, but Jesus is lovingly trying to expose him. And part of the reason they reject and respond so aggressively against the light is they don't want to lose face. They don't want to recognize or admit that they're wrong. They don't want to recognize that they're walking in darkness, that they're evil, that they uh, are deserving of condemnation. That would be a very humble thing to recognize. And these guys struggle with humility. By the way, if we were to go back to John 16, 8, what's one of the other things that the Holy Spirit is trying to convict the world of? If you remember, sin, unbelief, righteousness, you don't have it. God wants to provide it. And judgment. That's, that's another thing. If you talk to the average unbeliever, they just don't think there's a judgment day coming. So they're, they're just not convinced that what Jesus did was necessary. And so ultimately, he is convicting them. You will be judged. Your deeds are being exposed because of your lack of faith in God's solution. So the very thought of condemnation sickens them. Uh, they take their stand and fight against it. They reject God's life-giving solution. Because you know why? Then they would be wrong. And some people cannot stand the thought of being wrong. Many of us in this room can't stand the thought of being wrong if we're honest with ourselves. We, we don't like to be corrected. It's painful every time we are corrected. We want desperately never to be wrong because being corrected is just the worst feeling on planet earth. And so you can imagine when the stakes are this high, especially for someone like Nicodemus, why he might respond this way because his deeds, the path that he was taking would be exposed as a shameful path that he had been wrong his entire life. Now, thankfully in verse 21, it's not true of all people. Some do respond positively to this revelation. Verse 21 says, but he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. He who does, again, describes, it's that same word, he who makes, forms, or produces or brings about. But notice, uh, it doesn't say he does works. That's kind of what we would expect there. You know, it's, he's been using the word deeds a lot. But it's interesting, he shifts here. He says, um, not do works, but they're a doer of truth. And so, what does that mean? What's a doer uh, of truth? And I believe it describes someone who pursues truth, someone who responds to it, someone who, when persuaded by and presented with the truth, they change their mind and they respond to it by faith. This is exactly what I believe Jesus is looking for Nicodemus to do. Nicodemus, I'm presenting you with truth. I want you to be a doer of the truth. I want you to respond to this. I want you to react to this. I want you to incorporate this into your thinking. That, to me, is what he's describing here. In fact, they, they come into the light using that illustration because they're now persuaded by the light. And now they're drawn to it. Because they don't want to continue in darkness. They want to continue in light in, in what really pleases the Lord. And so this is, again, God's solution to their sin problem. He clearly articulates mankind's desperate dilemma. And then he clearly articulates God's solution in Jesus Christ. And this is one of the things when you, uh, maybe just in closing here this morning, is uh, this is going to be a person who accepts God's standard of righteousness. You know, um, those of you that have been in school, you may have had a teacher or professor that graded on the curve. When I was in a class like that and I made 100, 
because I studied and worked very hard to get that grade. I was upset when they graded on a curve. Like, I don't care about anyone else. But you know what? When I made a 55 and I saw him add 40 to my grade, I was like, I love this professor. Like this guy's my favorite guy in the world. But it's unfortunate because many people come to the God of the Bible and they view him as this benevolent professor that's somehow gonna grade righteousness on the curve. And I've actually heard people say this where it's like, well, you just do the best you can and then, and then God will curve you up to where you need to be righteousness-wise. That's not true. That, that's the whole point of this passage here. Nicodemus had a level of righteousness that probably far exceeded almost everybody else in that culture. And Jesus has been having this conversation with him over and over and over again, using Old Testament illustrations, using different contrasts here and there to explain things to him. Nicodemus, God doesn't grade on a curve. He requires perfect righteousness that you cannot obtain, but he provides it through his dearly beloved son that when you trust in him, he credits his righteousness to your account. This is a truth doer. A truth doer will respond to that message because they see that that's true. I'm not good. I've lied. I've stolen. I've lusted. I've gotten angry with people. I've cheated, right? I'm not good enough to go to heaven. God provides a way for me to be good enough to heaven. And you know what? I'm going to put my trust in his solution for me. That's what it takes to be born again. That's the message of Jesus coming out of this for Nicodemus. Nicodemus, you must be born again. He's trying to convince him not only of the necessity of it, but he's trying to persuade him to trust in the one who provided the solution for him. And so, uh, again, if you're here today, and this is confusing or uh, doesn't make sense and you'd like to talk more, we'd love to talk to you um, afterwards. But again, we just want to urge you, if you have not trusted in Jesus Christ and his finished work for you alone, that you do that right now, that you wouldn't wait uh, even a second. If you're convinced that he died for your sins and rose again, the Bible's got some great promises for you. One, you'll never perish. You have eternal life. Your sins are forgiven. And we can spend the rest of the afternoon talking about everything you now possess when you trust in Jesus Christ. But um, how about come back next week? We'll just keep talking about it. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this word. We, we want to in our thinking, just be convinced uh, of one thing, one primary thing this morning that what Jesus Christ accomplished was enough to satisfy your justice. May we, may we leave here convinced of that. May we leave here persuaded that we can entrust our eternal destiny to him and his finished work alone for us 2,000 years ago. Not what we're going to do tomorrow, not what we're going to do in 20 years, but what he did 2,000 years ago. May, may we be just convinced that, that he in his finished work alone is where our faith needs to rest. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.